Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're joined by a wonderful guest, Dr. Rachel Watkins. Uh, She's a biocultural anthropologist whose work focuses on African-American biohistory and social history, bioanthropological research practices, and histories of American biological anthropology. Welcome to the show, Rachel, and thank you so much for talking with us. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. How are you all doing? Oh, uh-huh. so doing good. Well. Good. good. We're good. doing so much better now that you're here. Ah, that's true. Finally, at last. <laughs> oh, that's right. You took a moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we were originally supposed to uh, interview Dr. Watkins at the two, uh, 2018 uh, AAA conference, but circumstances intervened. But fate has brought us back together. So two (laughs) years and some change later, here we are. Um, So uh, perhaps we should just jump right in. Yeah, let's do it. Let's make up for some lost time. Yeah. Uh, So so starting off, uh, what was your educational trajectory and what brought you to biological anthropology? Yeah. So um, my mother, if she were here, would start me at the age of five when I was getting on her nerves one day and she put me in the bathtub with a bubble bath and little sunshine family dolls. And she went to go chill. When she came (laughs) back, there was sunshine family arms and legs and torsos and heads floating all the tub. And of course she was abhorred. She was horrified. (laughs) Do I have a demon child? And she said that she looked at me and said, Rachel, why did you do that to the Sunshine family? And she said that I looked up at her and said, because I wanted to see what was on the inside. So he traces my interest in skeletal biology back to that moment. And she actually (laughs) reminded me of that moment when I called her up uh, in my doctoral program in, I don't know, year three or something and said, I'm going to quit. I give up. So she, she said, no, this is, this is what you're meant to do. So oh. uh, you would start it there, but uh, in a more traditional sense, um, I had the privilege of attending an elementary, middle and high school that had a lot of, had quite the innovative curriculum. And one of my high school teachers in this, we're talking about mid to late 80s now, did a sabbatical for a year in South Africa uh, and came back and taught a course on what she called at the time prejudice. And in that class, in the class called Prejudice, we read Stephen Jay Gould's The Mismeasure of Man. And so that was actually my initial introduction to, to anthropology. And that book stuck with me such that when I got to college, 
Howard University. And after I got tired of changing my major every week, I returned to that book and how much it had interested me. And I look, you know, learned more about anthropology and saw that there was a biological dimension, a cultural dimension to it, a linguistic and archaeological. And I thought this is the discipline for me. So I went to Michael Blakey, who at the time was an anthropology professor at Howard and told him I wanted to change my major to anthropology. And he said, well, you have good timing because I just got an NSF grant to curate the skeletal collection that is here on university, on the university uh, campus premises, on campus, in the basement of Howard University's medical school that was put together by the first African-American to get a PhD in biological anthropology, William Montague Cobb, who taught at Howard. And I, my response to him was, well, you know, I really want to be like Zora Neale Hurston. So, you know, congrats on your grant and all, but no thanks. <laughs> and he kind of, you know, looked at me the way that professors <laughs> look at naive kids and said, well, you know, The way that we study the skeleton as anthropologists and certainly as part of this kind of African diasporic scholar activist tradition doesn't just involve looking at the skeletons in and of themselves or just by themselves, but we look at what the skeleton can tell you about the ways that people lived and the ways in which people were culturally embedded. And, and the, you know, you can tell how people experience inequality or are able to um, buffer that. All of these things are apparent in the skeleton. And so luckily it only took that short conversation to win me over hmm. And I was kind of installed in the lab for a long time ever since, from the time I was like 19 up until maybe a few years ago. Oh, wow. Wow. Yep. What a what a wonderful trajectory, a sort of that, like that um, confluence of, of luck and the, of just like sh- walking into his office at the, <laughs> the right time and yeah. being, being sold on that. And, um, and also I, I love those little sort of like glimmers into like our childhoods. Yes. <laughs> like, was it always there? Right. <laughs> Flooding dormant. <laughs> yes. I like to share that when I talk to uh, K through 12 students to say, you know, there are things that you're, you might be interested in now that you think are not going to have anything to do with, you know, your career when you're an adult and you never know. Yeah. You never know. Jumping off of, we'll get back to your work with the Cobb Collection, but first of all, maybe you can give us sort of the actual intersection of biological anthropology and then the social concept of race, because that can be a very sort of thorny issue. Absolutely. And it actually does require me to return back to the Cobb Laboratory and the Cobb Collection because the reason why Cobb established the skeletal collection at Howard, everything to do with the role that he wanted to play and that he wanted other African-American scholars to play in resisting and debunking this idea of biological race, that it was possible to you know, t- uh, look at a particular part of the skeleton, the skull, the, you know, the, the eye orbits, 
the femur and tell whether or not somebody was caucasoid, negroid, mongoloid. These are the, you know, kind of terrible racialized terms that were used at the time. So a lot of his work as a bioanthropologist and as a, a medical activist revolved around resisting and debunking this idea that different racial groups had these inherent biological differences. And what we also know from the history of how these different biological, you know, racial categories were constructed is that they always intersected with, with culture. That race from its inception was this concept that involved conflating biology and culture. So in other words, Whatever, whatever racial or biological differences, you know, the racial and biological differences that a certain um, group has include differences in intellect, aesthetic differences, all of these things were kind of, you know, in a very messy way, jumbled up within race and the concept of race and biological anthropology played a huge role in helping to make race look real biologically, to make it look with something that, you know, that it was the appropriate way to categorize um, human beings and to understand human biological and social diversity. So the roots of the concept of race um, and, and biological anthropology intersect in terms of a kind of history of supporting the idea. But when you fast forward to, to later on, um, but not as late as many of us think, because, you know, in addition to, you know, Boaz, we have folks like Cobb and others who uh, initiated in various ways a turn away from this, this racial understanding of human difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Um, so you've mentioned, so you, you did mention sort of a bit of the why as to, um, the, like why William Montague Cobb, um, started this work with the, the skeletal collection there at Howard. Um, but as for the collection itself, could you tell us a little bit more about the history of it and, uh, sort of how, those skeletal remains got to be there. Um, and then also what your work with, with the, the Cobb skeletal collection entails. Sure. So I guess I have to start with William Montague Cobb teaching mm-hmm. medical school at Howard university and joining the faculty, the Dean of the medical school at the time, talking about um, the early thirties, um, selected Cobb and some other members of the faculty to go to another university to receive advanced training in some area and then come back to Howard and uh, establish some sort of program around this advanced training or expertise they received. And in Cobb's case, he went to Case Western Reserve University, or what is now known as Case Western Reserve University. And he studied with a biological anthropologist and physician named T. Wingate Todd. 
and he uh, focused his training on biological anthropology. There was a skeletal collection there, which is still there, called the Hammond Todd Collection. At the time, it was just the Hammond Collection. Todd's name was added in honor of him later on. And Cobb did his dissertation research on this skeletal collection that was already there. And when he finished his training and came back to Howard, he decided that he wanted to have a similar skeletal collection at Howard that could be used in the same way to kind of, you know, help to uh, develop a, a, a non-racialized way of looking at mm -hmm. biological diversity. And so same as the way that the... Um, Ham and Todd collection and many other anatomical collections come to be, the remains are of people whose bodies were used in anatomy classes at high mm -hmm. medical school. So after their bodies were used in the training of anatomy, they went through the process that they go through so that only the skeletal remains are left and then they are stored uh, accordingly. So that's how the collection came to be. Cobb started this process in 1932 and I believe he added the last individuals to the collection in 1969. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So... So there are, um, you know, people, it's a, it's a, a recent, you know, it has a recent element to it. It's a, a fairly mm -hmm. collection, very interesting. Um, and so my work with the collection has taken different forms over time. So I mentioned that when I walked into Michael Blakey's office and kind of signed on to work with the collection as a, uh, uh, an, an initial anthro major, I was assisting with the curation of the uh, remains in the Cobb collection, which is in some ways a fancy term, or at least at that point for cleaning, getting all the gross stuff off of them. Right. And yep. yeah, and getting them in shape so they would be available uh, for people to come to the university and conduct research on them. And so after we finished the curation of the Cobb collection, kind of the time dovetailed, the New York African burial ground, the skeletal biology component of that project came to Howard. And as part of our public education within the laboratory, we would provide historical context in a manner of speaking with the Cobb collection because the New York African burial ground, as you know, dates to, you know, the 1700s, um, um, 1720 to 1790, I think is the general time frame. And then we have these remains of people who's, who, who passed away between 1932 and 1969. So we, um, engage the collection as part of providing a kind of historical context or trajectory of looking at patterns of health and disease in African descendant populations. And then later on, I decided to do my dissertation research on the Cobb collection. And I initially planned to do something really specific uh, and ended up 
by way of something a friend of mine noticed, my best friend, uh, best friend since college, who recently passed away, actually. She looked at one of the morgue records and she just kind of said three days and I wasn't facing her when she said, and I said, what? And she said, this person before they died was only in DC three days. And I said, what? And I looked and, you know, this is a collection that is generally described as being made up of DC residents and somebody, you know, who's been here three days is not necessarily right. Not but quite. No. Yes. Yes. So I, I realized that there were all of these, you know, kind of really interesting, um, or her, her discovery, her mentioning that attuned me to all of these really interesting nuances within the collection such that I decided, you know what, these people are typically treated as a whole and would be compared to people in say another collection someplace else. But I said, you know what, I'm going to study this collection as if there are different groups of people within it, because this three days thing, you know, there's something going on here. So that is my my dissertation research ended up being a kind of, you know, broad overview of who's in the collection and looking primarily at people who were residents of an almshouse of a poorhouse in D.C., Mm-hmm. people who were not um, as as part of really just an, to exploring all of the diversity within the Cobb collection, you know, just kind of laying a foundation for that that somebody else could take up later. And then later on, my engagement with the Cobb collection took a more archival turn in that um I and Jennifer Muller, who spent some time being interim co-curators at the Cobb Laboratory before the permanent director, Fatima Jackson, was installed, we came across all of these um, documents and these files of people whose remains are no longer in the collection. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them were always there, but then we found some additional ones. And so... We, you know, we together started to explore how to bring these folks for whom skeletal remains no longer exist into the fold in terms of being able to include them in the research process uh, as well. So that was kind of another part of the life. And right now, what I'm doing is focusing on looking through Cobb's papers. You have tons and tons of documents from mm-hmm. manuscript collection in which he's engaged in these conversations with people like Ashley Montague and Melville Herskovitz and Wilton Krogman. And what that correspondence and these conversations and these various exchanges um, tell me about is the way that Cobb was embedded within the kind of social intellectual fabric of Mm -hmm. American physical at the time anthropology and also the different ways that they developed research practices and the ways that they kind of conceptualized of of race and you kind of doing work 
against race and participating in making race real, inadvertently mm-hmm. or otherwise. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's where I am now. So I really want to, um, you know, what I'm hoping is that what will come out of the the work that I've done you know, and in, in especially the work I'm doing now, it's something that can kind of provide some sort of model for a kind of social historical, biohistorical study of an anatomical collection. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, where you're yeah. looking at the different, you know, actors and things. There's a lot of really interesting research that uh, folks who are recent PhDs or about to finish their PhDs are doing around the, some of these anatomical collections. And one of the things that they're pointing out is that the collections are certainly shaped by the identities of the collections are shaped by the people who established them. But it's also the case that the collections are in some ways shaping the identity of the researcher and looking at that dynamic is really important and really interesting, but not necessarily something that's organic to biological Mm -hmm. anthropology. So that's a part of what drives me to do this work. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. That's really interesting. The The two-way relationship is mm-hmm. really interesting to think about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and would you mind if I ask a, a follow-up question that was sure. by way of context? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, I, what I heard in, in what you just shared with us is that, you know, these, these collections are far more than the sum of their, their parts as it were, like they're, they're much more than just the, the, uh, the, um, the specimens in the collection, but yes. for, um, for our listeners and also for, the half of the show that doesn't deal a lot with sort of skeletal <laughs> collections sure. at all. Yes. Um, so I think I understand what the work that you do, like as, as you described it. Um, uh, but for someone that is sort of learning from a skeletal collection or an anatomical collection is, um, is the goal of like going into that and working with that to just sort of like learn in terms of how the the body fits together, sort of in terms of like 
physiology? Like what, what does one learn? Cause I think I understand like um, what you had mentioned sort of at the top of um, human anatomy. And so like when you know, like a medical school, but taking it to that extra, that, that additional step of getting to the point where it's now in a skeletal collection and, and somebody who is a bio, biological anthropology student would be looking at that. Are, are they looking for things that are, uh, that may be considered like pathologies? Are they looking for just how uh, the human body works? Like what does sort of, if I were sort of taking, if I were, this is my first time going in as a student, what would have brought me there? Great question. Um, and thank you for focusing me. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, okay, I'm thinking about, yes, random student coming in. They would, it's likely that they'd initially be interested in looking at differences or looking at health and disease patterns in the remains of the folks who are in the collection. And there are many ways to identify that. So there are these macroscopic changes that you see on skeletal remains that are the byproduct of nutritional deficient or being overworked. But then there is also an archival dimension to that because you're not just, you know, that that student is not just going to come in and look at the skeletons in and of themselves. If they know that there are morgue records there, that tell you where that person lived, uh, whether or not that person is male or female, how old that person is. I mean, even though, you know, that's something, these are things that you can also identify uh, macroscopically in the skeleton. Um, having those archival documents are going to be helpful in that way too. And then that way you can kind of look at the health and disease patterns that you see in a collection like the Cobb collection and determine if there are differences in health and disease between um, named men and women, since that's the, um, you know, that binary is what, you know, dominates how folks are categorized in that collection, of course, given the time period. Um, are there differences between uh, and are there differences in health and disease patterns between people of different age groups? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, um, I, I was, I was like really with you on like everything you were saying. And then I sort of had a moment of like, that's if you dig in, like that's sort of like digging yes. in and like getting past sort of the initial experience that, that folks are having when they're learning in these spaces. And I wanted to make sure that we um, had a clear sense of, what that uh, initial uh, relationship sure. with the collection would be. Yeah, and it would be with a collection like this, it would indeed include that archival component because mm -hmm. as we know, there are causes of death or ex biological experiences that person might have that don't show up on the skeletal right. remains, okay. but will factor into analysis. And so those records are helpful for that as well. So you can be looking for patterns within the collection as a whole, but then you can also be looking at sort of individual life histories. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. So we were we were doing our research on you uh, before the show, <laughs> and in in a lot of your 
writings and in, in your various faculty bios and things, you've, you've mentioned a lack of minority researchers in bioanthropology. So what do you see as steps forward to address this? And do you have advice for anyone who doesn't see themselves represented in this field as a way to break into it? So there are, I guess, a couple of things. Yes, I do make a point in a lot of my writing and certainly in my faculty bio that there is an overrepresentation of racialized minorities in these skeletal collections and an underrepresentation of racialized minorities conducting the research and that that has to uh, change. I think part of the change involves a kind of internal critique and understanding of what drives, what informs our research practices. So there's that. And then there are also initiatives that it's important to put in place that involve intentionally bringing uh, people of color, LGBTQ scholars, you know, into the fold. Uh, the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, for instance, has a program called, I hope I'm not messing it up, Ideas. And I think Susan Anton had a, a lot to do um, with putting that in place, not to discount other folks who were working with her, but that is a, a program of our professional organization that focuses on uh, supporting uh, minority scholars, minority students, mm -hmm. bringing them into biological anthropology. So that has to be a big part of it. And then the other important piece has to do with university hiring practices and, you know, kind of making a commitment to intentionally not just hire, but retain mm -hmm. of color mm -hmm. because there are places where faculty of color and other minority faculty get in the door, but they don't end up making it through tenure and promotion because there are not um, the, the system or the structure of the organization is not such that uh, it, it, it enforces equity. It might enforce diversity, but not equity. Um, and so in the case of minority scholars, this means nurturing them to tenure and promotion um, and not just, you know, letting them in the door. So those are three things I would I would highlight. Now, for students who don't see themselves represented in the field, um, I highly suggest searching for, you know, searching out, looking for folks who do look like you or who do reflect your interests because we are here, even if we're hard to find. And we're also very committed to connecting with, with students to make sure that they know that this field is for them and they can, they can be a part of it and thrive. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, thank you so much. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. 
It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. So we've addressed this next topic um, in various ways, in various episodes, but to understate it, anthropology <laughs> is a discipline with troubling roots. Um, and so, and I, th- I think also that um, our conversation so far has, has sort of spoken to some of those roots. Uh, and so what are your favorite ways, proven strategies tips um, about um, teaching about the history of anthropology, history of science um, in a way that acknowledges the past and, and sort of um, tries to reckon with it perhaps, but also seeks to move the discipline forward. I didn't know what you're talking about. There's nothing wrong with anthropology. What? No. Yeah. It was, uh, it was it invented <laughs> out of out of nothing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It just sprang forth. Poof. Um, Woof. So one of the reasons why I am very passionate about anthropologists being involved in K through 12 education, however that is possible, um, has everything to do with addressing the the problematic roots of anthropology, because um, you have the opportunity to expose younger folk to anthropology and take them through the history and demonstrate how this discipline has gone from being extremely problematic to raising uh, important questions and taking, you know, engaging in various forms of course correction that make it a very useful discipline for understanding human conditions, human interactions, and, and, and those experiences and interactions biologically. Uh, and and culturally. So I think that a lot of teaching about the history of anthropology, where it started and where it is now, is is really a huge part of of what we should be doing. So that I really love to to do that. In terms of moving it forward, I feel quite strongly that those of us who are in a position to surround younger scholars, um, even, dare I say, protect them such that they can engage in innovative work now, you know, and they don't have to mm-hmm. buy the do something traditional now, wait until after you get tenure and you can do the innovative stuff. That doesn't help move our field forward. That actually helps to kind of, you know, reinscribe this, you know, problematic cycle um, that we're in where knowledge production is concerned. So um, I have I have colleagues 
who are both uh, racialized minorities, minorities and allies, and we all work together to support each other's students and support their innovative research. And their work is already um, gaining visibility that is having a really positive impact on, you know, continuing to move the discipline forward. There's some there's some light ahead of us. That's good. Yep. And around Definitely. us. I should Definitely. not to discount what's what's currently being done and has been done in recent years. Uh, well, shifting gears a little bit, can you tell us a bit about the New York African Burial Ground project? Yes. So I I will start by saying that Michael Blakey in February, so just last month, gave a great talk uh, for the New York Academy of Science which I believe is available online. Oh, great. We'll, uh, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Yes, can. please do. So I would direct, yeah. yeah, I direct everyone's attention to that talk since it's nice and recent. And it also commemorated the 30th anniversary of the New York African Burial Ground Project. So oh, cool. 30 years ago. <laughs> and it started. And uh, I think I mentioned, you know, my entree into the Cobb Laboratory as a, a 19 year old shortly after um, we or we were nearing the completion of curating the Cobb collection. It's when the uh, burial ground that was was used to bury enslaved Africans was uncovered in lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone is aware of the the timeline. There's there are great resources. I think online resources that you can uh, direct your listeners to. They give you the timeline of all of the important uh, political action and uh, intellectual and political action that took place for that project to end up being what it was. Um, and I was a part of, I think I mentioned the, the research team and being a part of the research team um, involved, I, I don't even know how to, I, I don't really have the words, training that was invaluable in terms of being so incredibly integrative bioculturally, but also in terms of understanding the, the role of community engagement in research and actually a really more of a participatory way of generating knowledge um, with, with folks within communities. Um, so yeah, my, my work, I was a, a, a research, I was part of the research team and the research team was multi-generational and multi-ethnic and um you know, we had folks at various stages. Once you got to a certain level of uh, knowledge and being able to do stuff, you could be promoted. So it it was a it was a an incredible, really um, functioning system. And since then, many of us have continued to produce research, uh, write about, and also do work that extends from the burial ground project. So for instance, there's a lot of work that I do around historical interpretation and preservation that uh, prioritizes descendant community engagement. And Mm -hmm. the reason why 
I am asked to do that work has to do with my involvement in the New York African Burial Ground Project. So your work was, this was, this was post-excavation, mm-hmm. is that right? Yes. Okay. When the remains were uncovered, they were excavated in New York and they were brought to the laboratory at Howard University oh, okay. for research. Mm-hmm. And so um, your, I hesitate to say your job, but your, your function in, as a part of this team, was this more sort of individual biographies, like sort of understanding details of these people's lives from their remains or were there objects found also? Yes, it was an incredible combination of both. So we were working directly with the ancestral remains and cleaning them and organizing them so that our resident osteologists could observe them and and do Mm -hmm. thorough osteological assessment and, you know, including noting pathologies and things. But quite often, when we were in the process of very gently kind of removing the remains, the, uh, you know, blocks of soil they would be in, we would find um, shroud pins. We Mm -hmm. find, you know, we found beads. We found uh, a beautiful kind of silver locket. There were all sorts of things that we would, we would, we found quite a few artifacts. I imagine that would be very affecting. It really, really was. It really was. I, um, yeah, I mean, we were all, some of us, not all of us, some of us, those, you know, folks in my cohort, my peer group, we were quite young. And nonetheless, we were very, very um, taken by all of this. We really were quite clear about the importance and the magnitude and how just incredible it was to have the opportunity to add to the American historical story in this way. Yeah. 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 This is, yeah. I'm very, um, very struck by the emotion that that would bring with it along with sort of the thinking about the, sort of significance from a research perspective, but also um, those those more like qualitative aspects of um, sort of, well, like sort of bringing social history to history and like bringing um, lives and, and uh, beings who had lived to sort of historical narratives. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, so, and that, that comes to something that um, we, we talk a lot about on the show um, and we talk about how, uh, um, archaeology and and anthropology more broadly are ways to access lives and ways to access um, sort of people voices. who had uh, yeah voices and the voices of those who um, who who you know walked the earth and who had uh, joys and sorrows and and all of these things that 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 are that we experience. In, in our lives, wherever we have them and however we have them. And so it's something that is that, that true, that human aspect that sort of undergirds all of this. Um, and I can imagine that you've probably had many experiences of sort of brushing with that humanity of, of individuals throughout the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, um, 
I wanted to know, um, do you have a favorite story <laughs> or sort of, do you have <laughs> it's something that is like the most like memorable, whether it's the most arresting or the most, um, or even a, an individual with the most interesting or your favorite story? Yeah. From, from either the, the Cobb collection or, um, your, your, your work with the, uh, New York African burial ground project. Do, do either, do you have those that that stand out it doesn't have to be a favorite sort of like children you can't have favorite, a favorite is an odd word yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well when you'd like to share I should say. yeah I guess so um I I can't I can't necessarily speak to particular individuals mm-hmm. what I will say is that there was a, a level of gravity to working with the remains in the cop collection but when the New York when the remains from the New York African burial ground came to the laboratory, it, it really kind of shed light or gave me a deeper understanding of the significance of the Cobb collection. And that's actually why I decided to do my dissertation research on the Cobb collection. Mm. Cause I thought, wow, you know, these, the remains of these people in New York, these ancestors, New York were buried and there was a burial ground and there was all of this, you know, political action and, and other things around it. But these remains in these anatomical collections don't necessarily receive the same attention, but there's still people who had lives who were breathing their humanity. So I guess there's a way that my engagement with the burial ground remains kind of added to my understanding of the humanity of the people in the Cobb collection. And so there are particular women and men in that collection whose stories I became quite attached to in terms of, you know, kind of being fascinated over how they were not claimed for burial by their relatives, but Mm. relatives were listed on their morgue records. So, I mean, it meant that they were they were a part of somebody's family. They had loved ones, but the loved ones couldn't afford to uh, bury them. And so that's how they ended up there. So, you know, there's just a a particular way that um, that that pattern just really uh, struck me. Yeah. About, you know, what that that that's that's what inequality is. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. And, is. and yeah. Yeah. And those and those individuals that are now part of a, a collection, they're no less deserving of a sort of loving burial and memorial. Um, right. But they they weren't there. Those who survived them were in a position to do that. Right. Um, no, that's a. Um, it's very, very powerful. Yeah. And that, that's something that, um, I'm really, I'm glad that you brought that to this conversation. I'm glad that you, you mentioned that of, of thinking mm-hmm. about, um, uh, sort of how, because I think, I, I think perhaps the like sort of average person might think that people donate their bodies to science and sort of yeah. that, that's sort of the process. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you tick a box, you know, it's like when you go to the DMV or whatever, like you can, um, but that's not, it's that, not that, always that's what not, happens. That's not exactly. how, yeah, especially looking at things historically. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
which um and especially looking at the the problematic roots of anthropology mm-hmm. once again mm-hmm. yeah there was a sense of entitlement to being able to uh, acquire people's bodies for research yeah yeah certainly the roots of of anthropology but yeah so that was always very striking to me to see that because you do assume when you hear oh somebody was unclaimed for burial you assume that uh that means there was no one around to claim them but to actually see a name on um yeah the record is really striking yeah yeah well (laughs) <laughs> on that light I, note yeah <laughs> a bit of a tonal shift we ask these last two questions of all of our guests and we love seeing the variation and the the through lines in the responses and these are often what our guests say are the hardest questions <laughs> so mm-hmm. um the first of these is what is the best or possibly your favorite thing about anthropology you know i have to say it really is the possibilities the possibilities yeah is what excites me about anthropology that it is you know it's the study of humanity it's the study of the human condition and that can take so many forms and uh and the discipline accommodates that and accommodates it however rigorously you know we have methods and we have theories that uh can accommodate new directions different directions all sorts of possibilities around studying and uh, exploring what it means to be homo sapiens sapiens. That's what I love about anthropology. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And um, last question here. Um, If you could choose one moment from history, so from the past, or a moment from the history of anthropology to personally witness, you know, you can be you can participate. You can be invisible, however you want. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, time it's machine. Your, whatever, it's your whatever answer. You do. Um, what would you choose, and why? You know, I was thinking about this. I <laughs> really cannot. I cannot think of a particular moment. I will admit to you what came to mind. So, I everybody tells me I have a memory like an elephant, <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, for more or less, that's true. But I cannot, and I can remember moments going back to preschool and stuff. I really can. But I do not remember that Sunshine family. The bathtub story. I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> and it's so crazy to me that I don't remember that. So if there's anything I could do, I would, I would want to go back there and, and somehow experience it in a way where, you know, 40 some years later, when I'm 49 right now, I'd remember it. I would love to remember that. I'd like to count that as part of the history of anthropology. All right. Yeah, it's a formative <laughs> moment in certainly bioanthropology. Yeah. Specifically yeah. for those dolls. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, I was thinking, oh, and I wanted to walk the streets with Zora No Hurston or whatever. I could say something like that, but I thought, nah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are certainly moments of my childhood that I've been told about that I don't remember and would like to. You know, um, trust but verify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would just, I would love to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Rachel, thank you so much for talking with us. Is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to plug or places like Twitter where you'd like folks to find you? 
Um, I will say my Twitter handle is RJ Watkins three and the more people who follow me, the more accountable I feel to move out of my very Gen X engagement with social media and to be more engaged. So I will, <laughs> I will put that out there so people can help drag me, uh, into, into more engagement. Cause I need that. Other than that, um, my most Truly, Twitter can only be improved by your presence. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> you know, I think Dionne Warwick has really shut it down. I'm loving everything she posts. <laughs> <laughs> um, my most recent publications are in academic journals that are behind paywalls, but there is a short piece I did called Science and Freedom that is in Washington History Magazine which I believe is um, available outside of a paywall. And I actually, I really love that piece. I enjoyed writing it. And um, great. So, yeah. yeah Wonderful. Be sure to include that in the show notes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, yes, but thank especially you. thank you so much, Rachel, for being our guest. Thank you um, for having me. We did it. We finally did it. We all got together. We did it. Yes. Yay. It only it took, a, what, two, three years? <laughs> almost three. Yep. Yes. It was well worth the wait. What, it was definitely worth the wait for me, too, because I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Ah. Oh, gosh. Yes. Gosh, I'm blushing. Uh, so we'll be back in your ears next week with a new episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we are just The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that, plus all of our archived episodes, our merch, our syllabus for educators, and everything else that we have is at our website, <laughs> which is thedirtpod.com. Thank you, everybody. We love you. Bye. 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 This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.